You know, when one thinks about the continent as we speak now, it reminds one of the book, A Tale of Two Cities. It is the best of times and it is the worst of times. On average, most African countries have now been independent for the last 30 years. Ghana is over 60, of course, Nigeria is over 60, and a few other countries. But the continent continues to punch below her weight. She does so in all sectors, whether it is politically, economically, technologically. Africa is underperforming. And nobody can contradict that. In fact, on many indices of development, in real terms, we are on a backward spiral. And you can see it when you look at different countries of the continent and you see the young men and women who want to run away from the continent. You see the economies that are effectively shrinking. And I hold the view that if the founding fathers that met in the month of May in 1963 in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, were to rise, they would be disappointed. They would, of course, appreciate that we have taller buildings, that we have longer paved road networks, that we are in the technological world. But if you had a conversation with an ordinary person in Limpopo, or in Bangui, in Senegal, or in Ouagadougou, in uh, Burkina Faso, or in Bamako, in Mali, the report would be a negative one. And we have every reason to worry. Why is it that we continue to underperform despite the best intentions of the best of us? Is it a failure to perform or is it of a promise that was made, and I also base this on, if you look at the opening remarks of Kwame Nkrumah at the 1963 OAU for, uh, for our people supported us in our fight for independence because they believed that African governments could cure the ills of the past in a way could never be accomplished under colonial rule. Then what happened? It is a failure and a refusal to perform. It is a failure to the extent that we have had the opportunity to run some of our affairs. But the men and women, particularly the men who have been put in charge of our critical institutions, have chosen the path of serving themselves and their appetite for ill-gotten wealth to the detriment of the larger society. It is a refusal because despite the demands of the people that the leaders perform, the leaders have participated in an exercise of hoodwinking the people and creating opportunities for the erstwhile colonizer to come back into the continent and to claw back the gains that we would have made. Let us ask ourselves if you are referring to the speech delivered by Kwame in May 1963. He told us the following things. Remember that the neo-colonial project is alive and well. Remember that colonialism or the defeat of colonialism is just but the beginning. Remember that if we don't unite, we will be slaughtered, not in so many words. Remember 
that if we do not unite and have a common currency, a common army, a common uh, policy on all critical aspects, we will be recaptured once again. And just this week, when you are interviewing me, see the number of representatives from foreign countries that have been in the continent of Africa, not because they love Africa. The Chinese foreign minister has been here this week. The Russian foreign minister has been in your own country in South Africa. The Belarus president has been in Zimbabwe. The Pope has he's been the Democratic Republic of Congo. The head of the Anglican church is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The head of the Presbyterian church has been in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Americans have been here. It is once again a scramble for Africa. The Chinese have been here. So when you look at Africa, you see that she's a continent that is suffering from an identity crisis. We have people in position of power who still think that they are uh, fiefdoms of their erstwhile colonizers. And that is why you see the abject abandon with which the European Union refer to Africa as a jungle. You see the British sending in their, their, their beachhead in the persons of people like Tony Blair. And the net effect, therefore, as I said at the beginning, it is both a failure of leadership and a refusal of leadership to do the right things and a failure on the followers to make demands of the leaders. Julius Nyerere used to say one thing, that one of the problems of we Africans is that we have very short memories and very low thresholds of satisfaction. So, so, so that, 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 that international delegation that is on the continent, including the States of America as well, and trying to influence, I guess, the policy direction of um, the various continent as well. And of course, this is also for their own benefit. But what's your interpretation of what's currently happening? People call it, as you have said as well, it is yet another scrum for, for Africa. But what's the deep-rooted cause of this? You know, in order to understand Africa as she is now, you've got to look at her history. All these things that you hear being talked about, talk about globalization. Africa has always been globalized throughout the ages. She was globalized through slavery. She was globalized through colonization. She is now being globalized in the name of free trade. But see how foreign countries tell us what to do. In your own South Africa, you saw how the Americans came out and said, you cannot even have uh, military exercises with Russia. In other words, you have to be controlled. In Kenya, in the next few weeks, the Americans will also be having their military exercises. So the position is this, that Africa, even when she thinks she's doing things in her best interest, that is not the truth. So that you have all these delegations, but for every dollar they give to an African country, they are going to take away no less than $50. It is, uh, it is, is an engagement of unequals. It is an engagement where African leaders meet in Washington in December 2022, and they are given or promised $55 billion over a period of three years, but the Americans will come here and possibly make a trillion. 
So, so it is it, it's tragic, and, and it's as if we don't see, and even if we see, we don't care, and even if we, I doubt if we care at all. We simply want to live by the day as the birds of the air. We don't plan for the next generation, and it is us to blame. You blame the leadership, and you blame the followership. Why the followership? What is it about the, the followership? Follow the followership does not make demands. Africans, uh, when, when the people are elected into public office, they worship them as if they are gods. If you go to different parts of the world, demands are made of the leaders. Go to countries like Scandinavian, Scandinavian countries such as Denmark, go to Norway. The people are so aware of their rights that they demand. In Africa, when the government paves a road, the, the minister for transport is, is, is praised. The president is praised. How do you praise a bank for giving you the money that you, you bank there? So Africans, we Africans, we have a problem. We can't grapple with the governance systems that we inherited from the colonialists. And, and for that reason, we are easily exploited. We are easily hoodwinked. And we celebrate what we ought not to celebrate. Do you think we've lost the that passion, that fire to to fight for what we believe is ours? You see, it would appear uh, that uh, when we are under foreign rule, our satisfaction is in removing uh, the physical individuals, and when we replace them with our own, that is our satisfaction. So that even when those in political office are making messes, we excuse them. Oh, he or she is making a, a mistake, but he is our Zulu, he is our Venda, he is our Kosa, he is our Yoruba, he is our Luo, he is our Luhia, he is our Muganda, he is our Nyankole. And that is why I think Samora Moses Marshall said that the African nation can only thrive when the tribe dies. He did not mean that we stop celebrating our ethnic diversity, but we must not use it as the tool of engagement. Today, the tribe is alive and well, and our primordial instincts are alive and well. And that is why we don't get what we deserve. We don't get what we deserve, and uh, while we have these international bodies and international talks trying to influence the continent, as you said earlier on in the beginning of your opening remarks as well, is that you find thousands of uh, young Africans wanting to leave the continent, um, crossing the Mediterranean, willing to take that risk rather to cross the Mediterranean than remain in their countries and fight. Because that is modern day slavery. We have been made to believe that the grass is greener on the other side. You and me know that the grass is not greener on the other side. And the reason why those young men and women are running away from their countries is because the political class have created an environment where they cannot realize their potential. So they are prepared to die. They are prepared to go into modern day slavery because at home they are not capable of realizing their potential. You see our doctors running away our engineers running away, our trained people running away under what we call the brain drain. So everybody is running away to those who have skills and expertise
to those who have no skills at all. And the reason is because we don't address the issues. And you ask the question, has it been done elsewhere? The other countries, even smaller than many African countries, are using their resources properly. And even when they engage, they make demands of the people with whom they are engaging. During my own lifetime, I've seen the United Arab Emirates become a mecca for everybody, simply using one resource, oil. I've seen Qatar become a power in the world. I've seen Kuwait, I've seen Bahrain. But how many African countries have oil? Angola has oil, Equatorial Guinea has oil, Gabon has oil, Nigeria has oil. We don't use them. Instead, we create multi-billionaires who then keep money away in Panama and Gansi and those other islands. That is our tragedy, brother. And what we see in that also, Prof, is that it's almost the characterization of the colonialist, right? It's almost like our leaders have taken on and adapted whatever it is that the colonialists have done and said that this is the person that I want to become today and this is the leadership that I want to show. And again, I want to go back to what Ngwame Kuruma says. He says, if therefore, now that we are independent, we allow same conditions, this that existed in colonial days, all the resentment which overthrew colonialism will be mobilized against us. But then on the other end as well, you find black Africans um, celebrating or even um, romanticizing the idea of colonialism and apartheid and saying that things are much better under the white man's rule. You know, when you hear a former slave saying that life was better under the slave master, it is a very painful thing. And I hear such statements that it was better while we waited. And we must really be very, very pained when we hear such. And the truth as it is, is because the post-colonial African state is modeled along and on the basis of the colonial state. Your African president is a bad mimicry of the colonial government, complete with occupying the houses that they occupied, riding in the motorcades that they had, bearing the title that they had, running the parliament in the way they did it, complete with the regalia that they used, so that these are just glorified post-colonial states. We did not shake things down. And perhaps it is now that Africans must be bold enough to interrogate the governance system that we inherited and ask ourselves whether they are going to help us run our countries in a sustainable manner. And you may ask, who has done it? Look yeah. at the Chinese. In the last few years, China, in the last 30 years, China has risen to be the second largest economy in the world. Like them or hate them, they are doing their things in a Chinese way. Look at South Korea. They are doing their things in a South Korean way. Look at Vietnam post the war in 1970s. They are doing it in a Vietnamese way. But look at our countries. We are still members of the former French-speaking countries, members of a body called members of the former Portuguese colonies, members of the Commonwealth of Nations, and we love it. 
So until the day we change this way of doing things, until we re-examine ourselves and as it were, turn things inside out and ask painful and difficult questions, I can tell you that in the next 100 years, I'm in fact even shorter, I've said in the next 25 years, most African countries will be recolonized, but the recolonization will be very subtle. Today, if you permit me, look at the African economies. They are dominated by external companies. Look at trade in Africa. Almost 80% of African trade is terminated in the dollar. This is the year of the Africa continental free trade area. But when the tariff and non-tariff barriers are removed, I can tell you, holding all factors constant, it is not African countries that are going to benefit. It is the Europeans, it is the Chinese, it is the Americans, and it is the Arabs. And we are going to be laughing there and, and, and wondering what hit us. This is our so tragedy. What would you say the immediate priorities are? And also speaking about the role of, of the youth. And again, if you look at, uh, at, at, at the history, for instance, of Nkrumah, uh, of and see at what age he became president of uh, Danu. He was 36 years old. 36 years old. So there was confidence that was expressed in somebody who was very young at the time. But that's not only him. We look at, for instance, uh, Thomas Sankara. He was 34, 35, 33, 34 when he became president president. So it almost seems there is a lack of faith and confidence in young people, or even on the other end, an aptitude from young people who feel that they don't want to participate in the political project. Not at uh, Sometimes, of course, they, they were young because the circumstances were that it is only young, educated people who could rise at that time. The older people did not have education. But age has nothing to do with it. I mean, the idea that because you are young, you are better, you are old, you are bad, I think is misguided. I think it is about the ideas that you have and how you want to articulate them. And, and I can tell you that they are, Africa has had terrible young people. I can also give examples. And it has had terrible old people and, and good old people. So let's not talk about age as the factor. Of, of course, at a certain age, it is proper that people leave office so that you create succession. So we have uh, people who just simply refuse to leave office and when they are past their best, you must serve when you are in your prime. But the more pointed and more relevant question that you ask, what then must we do? Once again, the prescription is in the Nukuruma's dictum. Nukuruma was very clear and, and, and far-sighted and he was not the only one. Nyerere was equally far-sighted. Africa is divided into 54 countries, most of which are not viable, with GDPs of $3 billion and, and, and with many tariff and non-tariff barriers. First of all, Africans must now create an environment where there is free movement of peoples. When I want to move across Africa, it's a painful exercise. You look for visas through online portals, most of which don't even work. We must allow African labor to move. We must re-examine our education system so that we have people with sets of skills which are transferable. We must begin to feed ourselves. We must take advantage of technology. 
We must allow trade to thrive. We must decrease, we must change how we do politics. And this can begin through the regions. I know in the Sadak region, you'll be having a meeting, I believe this week or next week in, in Windhoek, Namibia for Sadak. What is happening? Africa, South Africa is the anchor economy in that Sadak region. Let us begin to see things happening. And Africa has no shortage of decisions that have been made. Let us implement them. Let us implement the Malabo Declaration on Agriculture. Let us implement the Yamasukuru Declaration on Free Air Skies. Let us implement the Abuja Declaration on, on, on Health. And we do all these things. Then we come to the East African region and West African region and Central African region and eliminate conflicts. As long yeah. as you have conflicts, then you can trade. And, and we know the tragedy, my brother Aldrin, is that African leaders and African uh, peoples know our problems. But for some reason, we don't want to cure the problems or we cure cancerous problems using prophylactics. It will not happen. And we must have a single currency. We must, in the nature of things, have a currency that can make you leave Johannesburg in South Africa and come to Nairobi, Kenya, without choosing to uh, having to, to exchange the dollar or the euro or the, the pound or the yuan. The prescriptions are to be found in the early thoughts of our leaders, and that is just 60 years ago. That is just yeah. 60 years ago. People are alive who are there with Kwame Nkrumah and alive with the Julius Kambarage Nyerere, alive with Samora Moses Marshall, alive with Robert Sobukwe or Artambo or Nelson Mandela and others. They are there and Kaunda. We must, before we are drowned, begin to brush up some of those specifications. I'll conclude my answer by telling you the... Lagos Plan of Action. In 1980, African heads of states and government sat in Lagos, Nigeria, and came up with the Lagos Plan of Action. And they said, among other things, that we must begin to trade more amongst ourselves. Intra-African trade is only 13%. That we must stop relying on external influence. Nothing happened about the Lagos Plan of Action. So it is not a shortage of ideas in Africa. It is the lack of implementation that is our Achilles heel. And, and finally, as we conclude, in, in one of your speeches making reference to Nigeria, you say that if Nigeria wins, um, Africa will win. And I think about what's currently happening in South Africa, what we're seeing with, with all of the Afrophobia being on display as well, and ask myself, how do we live up to the ideals, for instance, of an Inox on composes a song and says, God bless Africa. It doesn't say God bless South Africa, but it speaks about the entire continent, which goes back to the point of where, where you speak about the free movement of Africans continent. However, though, there's also of Africans amongst themselves. You know, xenophobia is, is actually a product of a misunderstood and misappreciated so-called lack of opportunities so that people think you are competing for something and you're actually not competing for anything or think that you are taking things away from them. 
if we make the cake larger, larger economies like South Africa will be magnets because there are opportunities. And it would be easy for me to come and buy a flat in Johannesburg if we were one unit. But the reason why we fight and expel our fellow Africans is because we think they are taking things away from us. There is a famous speech delivered by Tabombeki. I am an African. And I want Africans to read that speech by Tabombeki. He's saying, we are Africans. When the apartheid regime was running roughshod over Africa, Africans rose up. Young students were demonstrating in Accra, Ghana, in Lagos, in Nigeria, in Dar es Salaam, in Tanzania, in Lusaka, in Zambia. That is the spirit that we want. And that is what brings me to when I talk about when Nigeria wakes up, Africa will wake up. 200 million people. There is not a single field in the world where you don't find Nigerians who are highly trained now working in Europe and America and Australia, whether it's in medicine, whether it's in engineering, whether it's in nanotechnology, whether it's in all these sectors. What is wrong, therefore, in Nigeria? The toxicity of the political environment, which has created an environment where people can't thrive at home. If they could thrive at home, Nigeria would be the Mecca that we'll be going to, and it will open up all these other places, the Congo, the Togo, the Gambian. So in a nutshell, what we are saying is Africans must, love to, must learn to love themselves. And when they learn to love themselves, then they will work in a manner that will create an economic environment that will support everybody. Our hate for each other is informed by scarcity or perceived scarcity. In the midst of plenty, Africa cannot feed herself. In the midst of plenty, Africans think they are poor. In the midst of plenty, we are manipulated. In the midst of plenty, we suffer from low self-esteem. In the midst of plenty, we are beggars. We must stop all these. And this can only be done if the men and women we entrust with political leadership are made to do the right thing.